We're in a series called Steadfast Love, The Strange Journeys of Hosea and Jonah. And today we're going to breathe a collective sigh of relief after some of the passages of the last few weeks. And we're going to be in Hosea chapter 11. It is a beautiful passage. It's just the kind of thing you're so grateful is in the Bible, or at least I hope you will be. Um, But if you're new to the series, we have been seeing over the last few weeks how Hosea, who lived in the 8th century BC, so 2,700 years ago, a long time back, but how Hosea was called by God to marry an unfaithful wife who was going to cheat on him, but he had to remain faithful to her. And that that was true because they served as a picture of God, the faithful husband, and his relationship and commitment and steadfast love to Israel, who was like an unfaithful wife, because Israel would wander off, instead of being faithful to God, would wander off and sometimes, you know, literally in a sexual way, would express, just have affairs with all sorts of other gods. But it was always chasing after other deities, you know, Baal and Asherah and Baal and Nebo or Moloch, whoever it was in that period. And meanwhile, God remained steadfastly committed to Israel. And so God says, I want, Hosea, I want you to marry an unfaithful wife. And as a picture of my faithfulness to Israel, in spite of her immorality and unfaithfulness to me. And then over the last four weeks, we've seen a series of very, sometimes quite heavy, direct, challenging prophecies of judgment and rebuke towards Israel for her idolatry. And so these last four weeks, uh, you know, chapter four, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Chapter six, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Chapter eight, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Chapter 10, they'll say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Like really strong judgment language, some of which becomes has become famous and expressions that many of us still use today. And those judgment prophecies came to a head and were, if you like, f- historically speaking, fulfilled in the exile. So here's a Here's a map of the of the area. It's very simplistic, really. But you have Israel in the north, um, Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim in this book, in the north, and they are deported to Assyria in 722 BC. And then Judah and Jerusalem in the south, and they get deported to Babylon uh, 140 odd years later. And the, the exile, or those two moments of deportation and exile, express the judgment of God that Hosea is talking about. Hosea is mainly talking to the north. So that's the one that we're mainly focusing on. Um, And in fact, if you're into this kind of thing, I think even if you're not, it is really, really fascinating to go. If you get a day out in London and you want something to do, go to the British Museum in Bloomsbury and, and just... There's a lot in there, right? But go to the Assyrian room. It's the best bit. You go to the Assyrian section, which is this period of history Hosea is talking about. It's 8th century. And what you'll find as you walk around is amazing. You find biblical characters, the Jewish people, the Jewish king, the the, uh, Jewish army, the Assyrian army, Jewish cities. And you find huge, like massive artifacts, wall reliefs and um, pictures and scripts and everything describing and pictorially representing the invasion of Israel by Assyria and what happened it's, and how God delivered the southern kingdom. It's absolutely amazing. And I say, if you're interested in this stuff, I just think it's a, a fun thing to do. But also, if you're not a Christian and you go, I don't even know, this is just like a holy book. It's not, didn't really happen. You go to the British Museum, you see, no, this is all talking about stuff that really happened. 
So it's talking about real people in history and what happened and, and what, why one army tried to cross the other and what, effectively what God did about it. It's really great. So anyway, I throw that out there. This is a, I just put the picture up so you can see a little snapshot of what they have. It's absolutely amazing. But Israel, in all of this, you've got this exile happens. In all of that, Israel is not completely destroyed. Right? So what happens is the, the, the Assyrians come in, they take them away to exile, but the nation are not destroyed. In fact, the, Judah, the people of Judah are still there 2,700 years later. We now call them the Jews. Right? But 2,700 years after this, Israel was not completely destroyed. So for all these prophecies about they sow the wind, they'll reap the whirlwind, even so, Israel is not wiped out. The Jews are not wiped out. And nobody in this part of the world, you, you, don't, you have never bumped into an Ammonite or a Babylonian or an Edomite or a Moabite, and yet there are Jewish people, Israelites, everywhere. No one who, from this period, no, none of these gods are still being worshipped. You never meet, you've never met anyone who worships Baal or Asherah or Bel or Nebo or Moloch. You've never met anyone who worships those gods, and yet all over the world there are literally billions of people who worship the God of Israel including me, including most people listening to this right now. So how is it that Israel, not just Israel's worship of God, but Israel as a nation was not wiped out despite all of these prophecies of judgment from Hosea? And the answer is, in a word, steadfast love. That's how they didn't get wiped out. It's the steadfast love of God. And more specifically, it's not just the steadfast love of God who is a faithful husband to an unfaithful wife but the steadfast love of God who is a compassionate and love-struck father to a wayward child. And we're going to see that image come through very powerfully in this passage. And as I said at the start, we're going to breathe a sigh of relief as we read it, I hope. And we're going to see something of the love of the father for his people. Let's read Hosea chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. This is the word of God. So far in the book of Hosea, 
the nation of Israel has mostly been portrayed as an unfaithful wife or a prostitute. That's been the main image we've seen as we've walked through this book. There are a number of other metaphors too, particularly in the message, the passage that Charles was speaking from a few weeks back. If Israel is compared to an oven or a dove or a calf or a vine, in one case, even a cake. Israel's like a cake. You think, well, where's that going? But mostly the image has been that of being an unfaithful wife or a, a cheating wife or, or even a prostitute. But in this chapter, the metaphor changes. Israel in this text is pictured as a child and the Lord as a deeply warm-hearted, passionate, affectionate, compassionate father. And so as you read through it, just notice the, the, uh, the affection and the intimacy and the emotional depth of the passage. It's really moving, I think, as you hear God speak of Israel, not only as a nation who has done what is wrong and has gone after idols, but as one who is deeply and zealously loved by the God who raised them from when they were a child and has brought them through. So just note a few things as we just go through it. Notice, first of all, the father's history with them. Right? That God is pictured himself as a father, they are pictured as a child, and there is a history here, which means that God is wedded to them and committed to their well-being in a way that doesn't happen if you don't have that history with a group of people. So what God does is he looks right the way back to the period of the Exodus, the, if you like, the founding of the nation of Israel. And he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. It's actually a heartbreaking image. God is looking back to Israel and said, this, Israel was this tiny little nascent nation, this little group. They couldn't do anything. They were enslaved. And I wanted to come and set my people free. So I did. I called them out of Egypt. And in the end, I settled them in their own land. But the more I called to them, the more they wandered off. And every time I delivered them, it seemed that they would then just say, oh, great, now we're safe now. Great, we can go off and worship other gods. And it was so painful in that sense for God, as he's pictured in this, in this image, as the loving father to find his child who he'd nurtured through and brought through and looked after and protected for so long to just continually find himself abandoned as soon as the next God came along. It's heartbreaking. I don't know if you, I mean, this may be true for you, and it may be true for, or it may be true for people you know, it's true for some people I know, where you have parents who are estranged from their adult children. It can just be such a horror, just such a, words are difficult to capture what it feels like in that situation. And when it's uh, one or two friends of mine where it's happened and you think, this is so painful because something of this language is how they would express it. But I've, I've known them since they were a child. Like I, I still think of them as my baby. I still think of them as my little, my little one who I held and then grew, and they got to a point where they eventually said, I don't want relationship with you anymore. There's often complexity in history to, to those things, and I know it's a very painful subject. But something of it, I think, is meant to point to God's heart for his people. That's the point to notice, is that God's love for his people is so, is so zealous, it's so passionate, it's so fiery, that he looks back and he says, I have known Israel since they were a baby. I brought them out, I took them, and the more I did, they just wandered off and eventually said, I don't want to know you, Dad. Notice the father's history, the, the emotional heft of this passage and the way God thinks of his people. Notice, secondly, not just the father's history, but the father's healing. Verses three to four. Yet it was, oh, this is my favorite image in the whole book, to be honest. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. 
I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I taught Ephraim to walk. I'm the one who lifted them up when they couldn't walk and just went, okay, just, just have a go, let's have a go. And they sort of held me hands like this and they'd sort of toddle along and then they stacked it. They fell face, face down on the ground. And then I healed them. I came down and said, oh, you hurt? It's okay, you're gonna fall sometimes, but I love you and pick them up again. And they walk, like, Daddy, look, I can do it. And, they just, and then they stacked it again. Okay, and then I picked them up. And then maybe their knee was bleeding or maybe they landed on their face or their elbow was grazed. And I, I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I taught them to walk. I've had the great joy of teaching three people to walk. I'm not sure I did a great job on any of these cases, but this is my, my most recent escapade. This is my son, Sam, just before and just after he learned to walk. So the just before, you can see he's still clinging on to objects in parks, but can't quite do it on his own. And then there was a day, I mean, it was an amazing day in our family when Sam learned to walk because my older two children, as many of you know, had, had both had a lot of uh, issues with disability at this age, and they'd taken a very long time to learn to walk, and we weren't sure whether Sam had a disability as well. And the day he walked on his own down the corridor, having made us wait until he was 17 months to do it, which is kind of late, and we were quite nervous and thinking, oh, is he ever going to get there and all this stuff? And then the day he actually comes down, it's like just great rejoicing. We filmed it, obviously, and so on. But within a very short period of time, he's standing in cupboards in swimming centres and that kind of thing, as you can see on the right, and just loving the fact that he can walk. But there's a very special, intimate thing that happens if you teach a child to walk, because they are... You don't give up on them, right? The first time they try, they make a step and then bang. And what no parent ever does at that point is go, oh, you fell over, you're such an idiot. This course, that's not what you do. You go, oh, they're hurt, okay, I get up. And then you heal them if needed, right? You maybe you know, dust them off. You might need to put a plaster or something on them. But then you go, okay, it's okay, go again. And they do two or three and then they stack it and then two or three more. And then over time, they learn and you get the privilege of ushering them into this life skill they're going to use for the next goodness knows how many decades. And it's such a privilege, but it's some, was one of immense intimacy and closeness as you pick them up and nurture them. And God is saying, that's what I did for Israel. And he's actually saying, that's also what I do for you. Right, we'll come to that in a moment, but that's what I did for Israel, for God's people. I led them, I took them and they fell and I picked them up again and healed them. And then they fell and I picked them up and healed them. That's the story of the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, Israel stacking it into the floor, making a mess of it, and God saying, I still love you. Of course, I, you shouldn't have done that, but that's okay. Let's learn from it and go on. And this is what God does over and over and over again. Notice the Father's healing. Thirdly, look at verse eight. Notice the Father's heart. This is one of the most deep passages in the Old Testament for the way God feels, if I can use that language. I know feeling is different when we speak it of God, but. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? So God has said, I am going to bring judgment. I am going to bring you into exile, effectively. You're going to go to Assyria. But how can I do that? How can I let you be treated like other nations? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma or Zeboim, who are like Sodom and Gomorrah, these, these cities that got destroyed? How can I leave you as if you're someone else? You're not. You're my kids. How can I give you up? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. That's the heart of God. So God's going to bring judgment and rightly so. But the heart of God towards his people is one of compassion and warmth and tenderness. Idolatry does deserve destruction like Adma and Zeboim and Sodom and Gomorrah. The wages of sin is death. 
but my heart recoils within me at the prospect of destroying you. I don't want to destroy you. My compassion grows warm and tender because I love you. That doesn't mean I'm not going to bring judgment. You are going to be sent into exile. And very shortly after this passage, they are. But I will bring you back. I will restore you. I will rebuild you. I will renew you. Verse 11 says, I will return them to their homes. The Lord will roar like a lion and they will be brought from these nations like doves from Assyria and they'll come back to their land. Of course I'm going to do that because of my heart loves you. My compassion rises within me. Can you feel the heart of the father as he speaks to his kids? It's a very beautiful passage in the way that God communicates his emotions, for, if, if we can call them that, and I know they're different for God, but if he's, he's the way he feels about his people. And then finally, notice the Father's holiness. Verse 9, I won't execute my burning anger. I won't again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. What God is saying there is like, I'm not like you, I'm holy. That's what we mean when we say God is holy. We mean you are unlike me, you're other than me. And God's saying, I'm the holy one in your midst. I'm, I'm God, I'm not a man. Human anger flies off the handle and goes, oh, I'm fed up with this big explosion. And when we're angry, we say and do things that we don't mean and we sin. And God's saying, I'm not like that. When I'm angry, I do what the right thing in order to restore, to judge, to bring judgment and to bring restoration. But I don't fly off the, hang the handle. I'm God, not a man. I'm the holy one in your midst. I'm angry with the sin and the idolatry, but I'm not subject to passions and emotional overreactions like you. I'm a holy God. So I'm not going to overreact to these sins in that sense. And theologically, that is very, very important for us. There's a lot of people who I think hear the word holiness and they think holiness is a word that makes God more likely to fly off the handle and get very, very angry with them and do something awful. But actually, Hosea is very clear. No, it means the opposite. It means that God's judgment is entirely controlled. It's entirely just. He's not going to fly off the handle and it will ultimately culminate in restoration and healing because God is the holy one in your midst. So you have an incredible picture of an affectionate father and... Many people today, including, sadly, many Christians, don't picture God like that. We're inclined to project, we do this with everything, really. I think we project our own emotions and our experiences onto God. And that means we struggle to grasp the Father's steadfast love. For some of us, that comes from our own experience of human fathers. We often say it, but it's true. We are inclined to entangle the word father when used of God with all the things the word father has meant to us in our own lives, which might be he was absent or he was violent or he was unpredictable. It can be many things. And those, but it's very difficult, even though we know it's not true, it's difficult not to entangle those concepts with God, even though those things are not true of God and never will be. But that's why, how some of us do it. We, our experience of fatherhood is complicated at best or terrible at worst. And we get that, those concepts then get projected onto God. Some of us, that's not our experience. Some of us say, my father was pretty great actually. But I still end up projecting things onto God because I know that my own emotional life is quite up and down. We know, I know I'm volatile. I know that I blow hot and cold. And so I assume, well, if God is personal, which he is, then he must be emotionally volatile and he must have mood swings and blow hot and cold as well. And so some of us get our, our doctrine of God's steadfast love wrong because of 
a bad experience of fatherhood. Some of us do it just because our own emotional lives are like that. And we think, well, God's probably like that too. And that's why Christian theologians for thousands of years have stressed that God does not have passions in the sense that we have. He, he's never taken over by something outside himself. His love is utterly and enduringly steadfast. It's always hot in that sense for his people. Otherwise, if we're not careful, what happens is we relate to God, not like a, a child relates to a steadfast loving father, but the way that a slave relates to their owner or the way that an employee maybe at best relates to their master. And that's not the dynamic that God wants us to have. Have a look at this, this table as some, something I've seen others do before, but it's, I've sort of made my own version of it. I'd, I hope it might help you if you can just see perhaps some of the things that you're inclined to believe of God. That if you see God the way that an owner thinks of a, sl a slave thinks of their owner, you're inclined to think that God is unengaged. But the Bible says... That God is loving, Isaiah 11 verse 1. You might think that you're inclined to think that God is harsh, but the Bible says that God is gentle. It said, I led them by the hands with cords of kindness and bands of love. You might be inclined to think that God is disappointed in you. A lot of people struggle to think God just looks at you and goes, they just haven't turned out quite the way I hoped. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible talks about God as affectionate. In this, in this very passage, Isaiah 11 and verse 4, you would be inclined to think that God was domineering, but the Bible says that God is kind. I led them with cords of kindness. You'd be inclined to think that God is critical. He's always looking for a mistake. The Bible says that God is compassionate, that he knows what we're like, and he extends endless, boundless compassion to us in Hosea 11 verse 8. We'd be inclined to think that God's love is inconsistent. It's spiky, it's up and down. He has good days and bad days. The Bible says that God's love is steadfast. It doesn't change. He's always overflowing with love towards you. You'd be inclined to think that God is unfair, but the Bible says that God is just. Hosea 2 verse 19. You'd be inclined to think that God is judgmental. The Bible says that God is merciful. I will show mercy to the one who was called no mercy. You'd be inclined to think that God is demanding. The Bible says that God is understanding. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust and he loves us anyway. You'd be inclined to think that God is stingy. But the Bible says that God is generous. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no shadow or turning due to change. You might think I'm making too much out of a few verses in Hosea. But if you do, just let's not forget that this picture of God as a loving, tender, affectionate, faithful father who can still bring judgment in order to bring correction to his and still bring discipline to his children. In fact, the Bible also says if you don't get disciplined by God, then you're not a real child. So it's not like this, is, this just means, all. Oh, sometimes God will say, no, that's not okay. And here are the consequences. But in all of those things, the tenderness, the warmth, the compassionate, the compassion, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the steadfast love of the father is at the very heart of the ministry of Jesus. Not just the ministry of Hosea. Hosea is not a, a, a lone voice here. This is what Jesus talks about all the time. His most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is all about the Father. The Father whose sun shines on the just and the unjust and who reigns whether you're righteous or not. There's Father who sees and hears our secret prayers and our secret fasting and our secret giving. The Father who feeds the birds. The Father who clothes the flowers and said, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed like that. The Father who knows just what we need before we even pray for it. The Father. Jesus is talking about the Father throughout his most famous sermon. His most famous prayer begins with the words, our Father, and Christians have prayed those words and owned them ever since. 
his most famous word, the one word Jesus used in Aramaic, in his language, which was so astonishing that it survived, even when translated into lots of other languages, like Greek or English or whatever, was the childlike word, Abba. It's the word a young child learns to say, to say Dada, Abba. And adults use it as well, so it's not just like our daddy, but it's a very intimate, rich, childlike word. And that's his most famous word. And Jesus' most famous story is about a story about a father who was estranged from his son, a boy who he had taught to walk and led with cords of kindness, only to see his son wander off and go astray, and yet who would not give up on him because of the depth of his compassion and tenderness. And he found his heart stirred towards him to the point that when he was still a long way off, he ran down the street along, hailed him, hugged him, kissed him, put a robe on him and threw a party, saying, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. This is not just Hosea going off on one hoping that God might be like this. This is at the heart of the biblical witness to God. It's at the heart of the Lord's Prayer, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of the parables, and the heart of who Jesus came to show us the Father truly was. So here's how we're going to respond. The Apostle Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption and and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as that of witnessing with our spirits that we're children of God and crying out, Abba, Father. That's what Paul says the Holy Spirit comes to do. Comes to do other things, but he comes to come alongside us and witness, you're a child of God. Now, here's the cry, Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit's here to do in your life, today, right now. You did not receive a spirit of slavery, Paul says. You received a spirit of adoption. So you don't have to fall back again into fear. You get to cry out, Father. So if you've sinned against God, You don't need to cower behind the sofa, terrified of what God might do to you. You don't fall back into a spirit of fear. You say, I have sinned against, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I want to come, I will arise as the prodigal son does. I will arise and go to my father, trusting that even through my sin, his steadfast love never fails me. You need to come to the father right now. In a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate God's goodness. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to move among us and reveal these truths deep in our soul, not just so I'm saying them, but so you know them. You need to come to the Father who taught you to walk, trusting that his arms are always open wide. And as we sing, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and reinforce these truths from his words. And we'll respond uh, in different ways uh, according to the site we're on. But Some of us today need a fresh encounter with the steadfast love of the Father today. Maybe there was a specific line in that table I put on the screen a moment ago that you found hard to believe. You say, you're right, I do think of God like that rather than that, and I want that to change. Others of us need reassurance for a particular challenge we're facing in life. We need to know that our Father is with us and over us and before us and behind us and for us. Others of us have found this series challenging because God keeps highlighting areas of idolatry and sin in our lives and we need to come back again to the goodness and the steadfast love of the Father and his forgiveness in particular for our sin. And there may be other things God wants to do as well. So let's come to him in worship and expect him to reveal his heart to us in the way that only he can. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love. And I pray that you would now reveal it to my brothers and sisters as we sing, as we pray, as we minister to one another. 
you would let us know deep down, you would witness to us, Holy Spirit, that we are children of God, to cry out, Abba Father, from the depths of our being, knowing that God loves us and always will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.